30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is a ritual. There are books about magic, and there are books on magic. The former is where I'd place series like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. The latter describes the Llewellyn and Wiser-dominated shelves of most occult sections, the grimoires and guides to crafting spells and preparing potions. But this distinction obscures a fundamental truth. All books are magic. Our ability to flip through leaflets of pressed wood pulp and experience vivid hallucinations of fictional characters in faraway places, or absorb the wisdom of long-dead writers, is absolutely astounding. It's one of those mundane miracles we do every day without thinking, reading, 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 forgetting that this arcane act used to be the jealously guarded secret of the clerical caste. But putting our amazement at this now ordinary act aside for a moment, if one wants to pursue magic, which pages should they turn to? Books about magic or books on magic? My guest today, Tomas Wayne Edison, is a professor of Spanish at the University of Louisville. And his answer to this question is, ¿Por qué no los dos? Why not both? His interest in black magic, and by that I mean the Afro-diasporic magical traditions kept alive by descendants of Africans in North, South, and Central America, started at a young age. But the works of fiction he found at that time were sensational stories of voodoo and witch doctors, a far from accurate depiction of the rich traditions he was being initiated into. But while books on magic can be informative, witty, and utterly captivating, they can also read like cookbooks. You sometimes lose the sense of place and presence that only fiction can provide, a sense of magic, mystery, and meaning that Tomas found in works of Caribbean authors writing in Spanish about the African magical traditions they themselves were intimately acquainted with. Tomas's new book, The Ashe Caribbean Literary Aesthetic in the Cuban, Colombian, Costa Rican, and Panamanian Novel of Resistance, opens this rich vein of literary magic for new readers, tracing how stories of black magic can empower black people. So let's turn the page and hear what Tomas and these authors have to say as we learn about the power of Ashe. Hi, Tomas. Hi, how are you? Welcome to Ritual Space. Thank you. It's great to be here. Which also happens to be your ritual space in your house, which is so lovely to be sitting here safely having a conversation right now. Thank you. It's great to be here, and thank you for inviting me to join you. Absolutely. What is our magic word going to be today? The magic word is going to be ashe. Ashe. Mm -hmm. One, two, three. Ashe. 
All right. Now let's define Ashe if we can, or at least give people the sense so they can follow the trail to the to its meaning. Ashe is a powerful word. It is from Bantu and Ashe. And actually it crosses over. It's Yoruba, Bantu, but it's a concept. And these of, are different tribal groups out of Africa. Out of Africa. Right. And it's a divine creative energy. And when people have Ashe, they're able to do things that they would not ordinarily be able to do. And the creative energy comes from some greater force. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like divine power coming down into you and blessing the person who is receiving it and it's moving through. Yes. And it's connected with animism mm-hmm. because each item has energy. And when you use your Ashe, you're able to combine different items to create something creative, mm-hmm. something powerful. And for those people that are on that same level, they're able to perceive it. They're able to experience it, be it art, you know, visual art, literature, music. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ashe is also, if someone says something and it's just on the mark, like Christians say, amen. Mm. Well, and Yoruba culture, you would say Ashe. If a person says exactly what needs to be said, you go Ashe. Ashe. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so when you're saying that with the animism idea, does do rocks and trees also have Ashe or do they have a different energy? They all have Ashe. And what's interesting is by paying attention, Mm -hmm. people are able to, for example, when you do a, a treatment or you do some type of ceremony, you look for rocks. And when you pick one up, you can kind of tell if it has the ashe that you're looking for. Oh, interesting. And there might be a certain rock that you'll just see it and you'll just go, that's the one that I need. Yeah. That's the color. That's the texture that I need. And whatever you, and the trick is, mm-hmm. whatever you choose Now, and this is what's complicated because a lot of us, and and I struggle with this too, you know, we have a recipe and you feel, this is a good example. I'm working with sourdough bread. Right. Oh my God. It's very difficult and frustrating because you really have to have everything lined up. Mm -hmm. Well, doing, working with animism, it's not that complicated because everything has its energy. Mm -hmm. So you can't go wrong. And you're trying to do it sort of by intuition and feel for it of this is the one that that goes in like this rock is speaking to me right now. Right. Right. You know, I love that because when I was first starting to do magic and looking for objects for my altar and things, um, I think like a Goodwill or a thrift store, you know, there's so many objects that have come from so many different people's lives and they all have their own history. Mm -hmm. And it's a great place to be very intuitive. And I always tell people, I'm like, just go with the thing that when you pick it up, you know it's right. Yep. If you're sitting there and you're going, oh, should I get this one or that one? If you're like, you know, the person at the movie store, like, which should I rent tonight? It's not either of them. It's the ones that you see it and you're like, that's it. Mm-hmm. That's it. Th- those aren't it. All right, cool. I'm just getting these two. You're right. And just using your intuition. Now, Ashe is a part of Yoruba culture, as you mentioned, where it's a Bantu word. Right. And both of those are part of the, I guess the the umbrella term is the Afro-diasporic uh, spiritual traditions, mm-hmm. and you are initiated into Santeria. Correct. And so, how did where did your interest 
into this come and how were you um, exposed to this world? And give us a little of the backstory there. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I am originally from Louisville, Kentucky. My parents are from Southern Kentucky. So I was not born into this tradition. I was born Baptist. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that uh, I experienced a lot growing up is being around Baptist that put a lot of energy into fighting against witchcraft. Mm. So the fact that there was a lot of energy, a lot of attention put on be careful because somebody could put witchcraft on you, that kind of made me think, well, wait a minute, it must exist. Mm -hmm. Because if Christians are really afraid of being a victim of witchcraft, I want to study it. <laughs> and I also kind of started to notice that there's a pattern. Um, and and I, as I say this, and this is the first time I've said it, I've written it. Yeah. And, and when you write it, it's much easier to write it. But in our society, we as people of color have been told that our hair isn't good enough. Our culture isn't good enough. Our dance isn't good enough. Our skin color isn't good enough. And the biggest one is our spirituality is not good enough. And at the same time that's being said, whites are appropriating it. Mm -hmm. They want to have curly hair. They want to have dark skin. And even with uh, African traditions, a lot of blacks in the United States have been brainwashed to frown upon Africanness, mm -hmm. but that is an avenue that's always existed to allow people of color to be able to be free, be able to heal themselves. Uh, and, but it's one of those things that if you're outside the culture, you don't really get it. It's an avenue that's always existed, but one that has had major roadblocks put in front of it because that was one of the first tactics of taking people forcibly into this country and then cutting off all access to their culture and their language and forbidding people to speak their own language and separating people so no one goes to the same plantation where somebody speaks their language and all of these ways to try and cut them off from that. Mm -hmm. So it feels like a really radical, powerful act to sort of say, okay, that's the road that you've told me not to go down, both you know, people mm -hmm. saying there's witchcraft down there, people saying that's too black, that's too African. And you're saying, no, I'm going to clear this path and see what's down here. And being part, you know, Kentucky is part of the Bible Belt. And I remember when I first started in graduate school, I wanted to pick, my, my area was Spanish, mm -hmm. and I wanted to pick an area that helped me to really understand that there's black people beyond the borders, beyond the border of the United States. Mm -hmm. And I started to notice that there were writers that used elements of African spirituality, of namely Santeria, because that's one that's easier to access. Mm -hmm. uh, there's five major African religions in Cuba. I'll just say Cuba. Okay. But then in Brazil, there's Condomble. There's mm -hmm. all these different energy fields and they're all cousins yeah it's like a family reunion like everyone's a little bit different but there's a lot of things that are so similar even even some of the gods i feel like they share names or they have a name that's just it's like almost like a nickname it's like clearly the same god but we just call him mm -hmm. you know we call him joe not joseph and that's where you get complicated people get really upset if you 
name the energy. Mm. If you don't name them, like, yeah. you know, I've talked with people and we've had great conversations. And then when they say Jesus Christ, it kind of rubs me the wrong way because if that's what they call it, it's better just to say a divine creative energy mm-hmm. that there's only one. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people feel like their flavor mm-hmm. is the only flavor. And that's kind of misnomer. Yeah. Um, what I when I grew up, when I went to graduate school, I started to find in literature a lot of writers began to present African spirituality in their work. And it was a way of them saying, I'm black Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to apologize for it. And I'm going to share some black elements of spirituality. And it's very difficult for people to attack that. But what did happen, like a perfect example is in Colombia, there's a writer named Manuel Zapata Oliveira. He was ignored when Mm. he published his books. People ignored him because he was black. And they felt like this doesn't fit in what we, this is not part of our canon. Right. So, um, and I remember when I was in grad school at the University of Kentucky, go Wildcats. um, I met this woman. She was the wife of the dean of research. And she sat down next to me. Interesting. She was married to a, a black man. She was a white woman. And she asked me, so what is your re- what is your research on? And I said, um, just to make it very short and sweet, I said, um, African witchcraft. And when I said that, she got up and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> and that helped me to see that I tapped into something. Yeah. Because it's very difficult to get people to be able to let themselves go, to mm-hmm. be able to listen and understand how other people kind of like outsiders outsiders we can understand each other Mm -hmm. but when it's the insiders and when i say insiders i'm thinking traditional christians they're kind of like oh no uh, no uh, that's not right and there's also i think um like you said earlier like when you talk to somebody if you want to talk in more vague terms you can both talk about things that are divine creative energy and be in agreement Mm -hmm. and when you get down to labeling it then somebody is going to disagree with you and it gets it gets more contentious i'll say and i think witchcraft is probably another one of those words where when you're saying witchcraft you understand what you're referring to as this tradition that comes out of africa that comes out of these different groups that is you know moved and is not just mutilating kids in the woods or what somebody who is inside of that more conservative Christian paradigm is afraid of witchcraft. Mm -hmm. So you're using one word, but each person in the conversation is seeing it as something totally different. And later on after that, it dawned on me to use my words carefully and short and sweet. And by saying witchcraft, it tapped into something on her end. Right. Uh, Now what I do is I say African spirituality. Yep. I try not to use the word religion because when people hear religion in their mind quickly, whatever they have been taught, whatever mm-hmm. is in our heart appears and it's very difficult to see anything else. Right. But spirituality, it's looser. It's looser. It's more open. And so then, yeah, it's 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 very interesting how we use terms like that. Like I, I think one of the reasons that I like wizardry so much is that it's one that people are 
aware of from pop culture. They've seen, you know, Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. They are like, okay, wizardry, mm -hmm. but they don't get what it means in a modern context. So most people get curious. Although I've had a couple of occasions where I ran into somebody like the lady who got up and moved away, where they're like, no, that's that's bad magic. No, like, mm -hmm. you know, the religious way is the only way you should be praying to Jesus. You shouldn't be trying to do magic. Hallelujah. So, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I had, a, I had a lady on the subway start praying at me in Latin once. In Latin. Old school. <laughs> old school. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She was she did not want me to grant a wish for the person that was sitting next to her. <laughs> they ask you for help? Well, I was I was granting wishes on the subway dressed in my wizard robes. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to this one lady and she was like, okay, let me think of my wish. And then the woman next to her is like, no, don't do that. Pray mm -hmm. to Jesus. No, he's bad. And I was trying to engage with her and be very friendly and polite. And then she starts praying at me in Latin. And I was, I was just so tickled. I was like, okay, <laughs> you're not going to win them all. Right, right. Um, but so in your life story, did you start exploring Santeria? What, how old were you when you actually started exploring this? Was this before you got to grad school? This was actually before grad school. I was kind of curious about it, but I really didn't have a good foundation until I got to graduate school. And well, yeah, graduate school was my intellectual kind mm -hmm. of like uh, introduction. So right. I started reading Magine Gonzalez Whipler, who has done a lot of books on Santeria. Mm -hmm. And as I started to read those, I'm like, oh my God, I'm getting this. This is uh, a pattern. And then I got to some um, more in-depth books. Mm -hmm. And then once I got that foundation, then I got to the point where I could read novels and I could quickly find out in the first couple of chapters if it had the connections that I needed. Mm. Um, one area, one of the things that happens within and i'll just be i'll say africans spiritual practices there's certain concepts we talk about animism mm -hmm. the other thing is focus on the word but they don't call it the word they call it nomo nomo okay. nomo is a bantu word mm -hmm. and nomo is so freaking amazing because i will notice i'm a teacher right and i've had students i had one student they told me that she was stupid. Like she, she said, I, I just can't do well because I'm stupid. She used the Yonomo. She called herself stupid. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that that happens a lot, that we will say things about ourselves that we really wouldn't want other people to say about themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Nomo plays a big role in the realities that we experience because we will say things about ourselves and we will say things like, oh, this probably isn't going to work. Right. And like if somebody's going to do a treatment for you and go, this probably isn't going to work. Well, that kind of automatically creates a reality that we're going to live into. A self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. That's one of the things that we talk about in the field of hypnosis all the time is people are thinking, you know, like, well... I'm I'm I don't I don't want to be hypnotized and it's like well most of the time what we're doing is unhypnotizing you because you've been hypnotizing yourself every day walking around saying it's not going to work 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 mm -hmm. that's the spell that you're casting on yourself and then you're saying ah oh, look you know I was right when it doesn't work and it's training yourself how to use that word how to use your nomo more consciously and powerfully because what you speak is going to come into existence might as mm -hmm. well use your words a little more carefully to stop um, getting in your own way. And doing 
The other way that the nomo is really fascinating is sometimes I'll sit down with the person because you can tell mm-hmm. when a person has something inside that's just there's something they're struggling with in, in, internally. And by talking with them, when you pay attention to the words that they do not use, mm. that also helps you to get a clearer picture. Yes. Like the biggest thing I noticed, because uh, love. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when people are, you know, you start a dialogue with them and you talk with them, you know, when they describe what they are lacking in their lives, they won't say love. They'll describe other things. But when they finally say love, mm-hmm. when they hit the nomo, everybody there feels it. Ashe. Yes. Yes. And it's like one of these things that people, and I guess it's what therapists do as well. You know, mm-hmm. when they're listening to a client, you know, the client really wants something, but they don't really ask for it. Mm-hmm. But when they finally discover like, okay, I am afraid. Mm-hmm. When the person defines it, that in itself creates a shift, yep. an energy shift, because now they've identified the problem. Now they know what to do about it. Yeah. That's really that's really powerful, and I know that there's entire like therapeutic techniques that are based around helping someone go through the language that they're using and identifying what's missing and what's vague. So mm-hmm. someone says, "No one ever helps me." Okay, that's no one in the history of your life has ever helped you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, let's actually dig into that. You know, when like, can you think of any time that someone's helped me? Well, I guess a friend did come over the other day. And they helped me, you know, take out some trash. Okay, well, there's, so it's not no one. Mm-hmm. So then let's get more specific. And then eventually you realize, you know, my partner doesn't help me when I feel like I need it. And that's the problem. Not no one ever helps me, you right. know, and you get more specific. And then by unlocking that, you're able to see what you need to do and and, and speak to it. And I think, yeah, that creates those big shifts. Yes. And I love the, I love, as a teacher, you know, mm-hmm. I get to use this a lot with my students and I in class, um, getting people to really focus and pay attention to the energy that's around them. Mm. Um, and, and it's, this is in class. A lot of times I'll have a student that will raise their hand mm-hmm. and they'll ask a question. And then I'll ask the students. So does anybody have an answer? And the person who asked the question, they'll want to answer the question. And I'll say, no, 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 no. <laughs> you had the question. Right. But that, but, but you start to see how language is really, because mm-hmm. we all want to be expressed. We all want to express ourselves. Um, sometimes we do it the detriment of others. And that's where we have to really pay attention to energy and connecting with others, which is the most difficult because in our society, we have been taught to be individuals. Yep. I, I am a product of the Anglo-Saxon culture here. Western American individualism that tells us the best that we can do is be that pioneer that rushes out and discovers the thing first and calls it for ourselves. Yes. And then when I want to make a decision, I do not have to talk with my circle of family. Mm. I just do what I want to do. Right. But I have friends from other cultures and it amazes me how for them it's really important to get uh, approval from an elder. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of interested. I, I notice these cultural shifts when I go to another culture. I recognize that as much as I am conscious of being an, a North American, I still see it's like we're, we're um, when I went when I go to Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I'll see something. I'll go. Oh my God, that would be so great. We should market that in the United States. Yeah. We should sell that. We should bring people down. And <laughs> yep. it's like, I can tell that that's my brain processing. The capitalist programming. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to escape it. Yeah. I, I, I ran into the same thing when I was traveling in Mexico and they have the, the markets where the, you know, the people are selling various things and there's the people who are selling tacos. Mm-hmm. And I would look at three taco stands in a row that all had the exact same menu and the exact same prices. And I was like, why isn't one person, you know, if everyone has tacos, why doesn't one person sell a super taco? If everyone only has these toppings, why doesn't somebody have the super shrimp taco and set themselves apart? Because that's the American thing, you know? Mm-hmm. You've got two pizza restaurants across the street from each other. One of them's going to come up with a new kind of pizza to, like, bring in people who want that new thing. And that's a totally different thinking where they're like, no, people want tacos. They don't want some new invention from us. They want the thing that they're expecting and there's plenty of room in the market for all of us to sell tacos it's totally fine mm-hmm. and we don't usually do a lot of research it's just like we quickly notice like oh wait yep. a minute these two taco stands y- y'all need to do something different yeah we don't really recognize it within their culture they they're doing okay yeah <laughs> yeah we get like the smallest bit of information and we're like i got a solution let me solve it for you you have been living in this like i know better than you instead of just realizing that we're only seen through a little keyhole and we don't understand the whole tapestry. I mean, all of those taco sellers could all be related and the money's going to the same place. You have no idea what's happening in that situation. And we're just viewing it with our, our single lens of individualism and how do we create something new and profit off of it. Mm -hmm. Now, going back to the books that you're reading, um, you're reading books about, Santeria and these other traditions, and then you move into fiction, mm-hmm. like literature that has it. Now, I know in like the Western esoteric tradition, there's a pretty big gap between if you read a, f- a fiction book, you know, that's about magic, it's going to be pretty supernatural and far out. And, you know, Harry Potter is very different than what most practitioners of these traditions would would claim to be. It's, it's a lot rarer to read a book where you're like, ah, they're accurately presenting these rituals. Mm-hmm. Is that the same thing? Or were you finding information that you were like, oh, even though this is a fictional book, this is very representative of these um, these traditions as they exist? In the novels that I have been working with, in the poems mm-hmm. that I've been working with, it they have been produced by individuals that have wanted to make it legitimate. Mm. So I haven't run into any that have been not in, in not in novels, mm-hmm. but then now I'm working in film. Mm. And, you know, everybody's seen the Blues Brothers, the yeah. first Blues Brothers movie. Right. I think it was the first one where there were zombies. Uh-huh. Uh, there was a, they go down to this plantation and I think Erica Badu plays this Marie Louveau priestess. That's all for entertainment. Right. There's no uh, authenticity to it. But in film, we don't really want to see, not many of us, not a lot of us, we need to kind of see our own ideas confirmed. Um, 
witchcraft, magic, spirituality. Black it's, magic. It's yes. Yes. Hoodoo. It's all bad. Mm-hmm. And these people, you know, sell their souls to the devil. Um, and there's a lot of films. I'm starting yeah. well, what I'm doing is starting off with the introduction by looking at, you know, four or five films. Oh, I can't there's a there's one and I have the the video. Um The Big League? It's a movie about baseball players. Yes. Have yes, you... I, yes, with um uh Major League. Major League, yes. Yes, with a Charlie Sheen in it. Yes, a very yeah. young Charlie mm-hmm. Sheen. Yeah, and, and there's a, there's like a superstitious baseball player, right, that has like voodoo stuff that he's doing. And he's supposed to be from Cuba. Mm. But then what he's doing is not Santeria. Mm-hmm. It's Vodun. Right. Now, but the audience, they don't really notice the difference. And he has the little doll. And it, and it turns out that when the movie came out, they were trying to market the doll. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. And it didn't work because our society, they, yeah. I can't remember. Juno? Uno? It had a name. That, yeah. But yeah, I'm glad that you remember that film. That's one that it's in the introduction. It just shows it's con- it's entertainment. Mm-hmm. Now, the movies that I'm looking at, like right now, I'm working with Daughters of the Dust. Okay. A beautiful movie by Julie Dash. And it takes place in the Gullah region, Geechee region off of Georgia, in the Georgia Islands. And everything is, it's kind of like an anthropological study where you see the role that spirituality plays in the lives of these individuals. Mm-hmm. So in film, it's much easier to see if it feels natural and if it's presented natural or not. Right. And I think that's the journey that we've come as a culture with film in general, especially in relationship to blackness, is from characters that were black being absolutely stereotyped and more often than not negative, mm-hmm. to now something where people are saying, "Nope, let's let's show the real experience." Kind of pull away that um, obstructing stereotype and get get to something that's more authentic and real, if you can. And I think there's a whole history of cheesy. You know, here's the voodoo priestess character mm-hmm. coming in to say mumbo jumbo, which is another, <laughs> you know, um, I believe the origin of that word is uh, from, it was a god that like some of the different um, African people that came over worshipped, but then became a derogatory term for just magic in gen- general of like, mm-hmm. oh, that's just mumbo jumbo. And so, yeah, like pulling away that stereotype to actually say, no, this is what, you know. It's more inter- the truth is more interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things, and this, okay, you know, I told you that I'm from Louisville. Mm-hmm. My parents are from Southern Kentucky. Well, as I got into religion, I discovered that my grandfather he was a dowser, mm. so he would look for water, right? And he, um, he was a gardener. Mm-hmm. I'm a gardener. So there was something there that he was, but in that society, being a dowser mm-hmm. was not considered at all witchcraft or magic, but there was some, that that requires a special gift to be able to locate water under the ground. Right. Um, and for me, gardening is a way that I'm able to access a greater type of energy. And it's funny, I have 
friends that they cannot stand gardening at all. But when I go out and work in the soil, it helps discharge all of the negative energy. And in terms of spiritual work, a lot of things happen using plants, Mm -hmm. cleaning people by rubbing. Rue is a big one. I I'm, my mission is to plant rue. It's R U E. It's Mm -hmm. an herb. And in the Bible, it's the, what they would use to use to put holy water on people. Right. Um, It's an incredible plant. It's also a host plant for the, I think it's the blue swallowtail butterfly. Um, But it's a plant that you put by your front door so that when people come to your home, the ideal thing is to have it to brush up against them Mm. to remove any energy that it's not going to be malevolent. Yeah. Oh, that doesn't feel right. But yeah, it's a, yeah. Malefic. Malefic. Yeah. Oh. Um, so I love gardening. And that's one of the things that when enslaved men and women got here, nature was the only thing that they could really trust and depend on. Right cycles of the moon uh rotation of crops and they worked in agriculture so there Mm -hmm. was a connection with the earth um and that is something that i feel like connects with me that i'm able to i can grow stuff without even knowing how it works it's just you do this doom um a lot of people freak out and they're like well tell me again no just do it it'll work plants want to survive well, I think gardening is like it's it's the perfect metaphor and activity for sort of spiritual life because one, you're working with big powerful forces. Mm-hmm. You're working with the sun. You're working with water. You're working with the earth. These are things that are so much bigger than us as humans, and we can guide them. We can channel that energy, but we can't just force it or control it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, we, I mean, you know, we can harness, you can have a, a grow room indoors and have everything be artificial. But if you're growing a natural garden outside, then you can't tell the sun when to shine. You can just put your plants in the best position to get that sunlight. And so it's about working with the, going with the flow in a way. And then also, I think, you know, you are channeling these energies and it requires patience. It's not just like you push a button and then your vegetables drop out of a machine, mm-hmm. but you're saying, okay, like, you know, I'm going to p- do this now. I'm going to do my ritual of sowing seeds and then I will manifest tomatoes when they come on, they appear on the vine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think it, it requires a patience, which is very powerful, especially in this, um, everything, you know, can be delivered to your doorstep era. I am working a lot with uh, studying permaculture Mm -hmm. and permaculture. One of the principles is that you observe and then you react. Mm. So if you notice that something is not growing, then you just move it Mm -hmm. or you put fertilizer or compost. It's like everything you adjust, you adjust as you go. And that takes a lot of patience Mm-hmm. Um, and also it's interesting as a gardener, this is my third year. Yeah, this is my third year here. Mm-hmm. This is going to be the year that things in my garden are actually going to be the way I want them to be. Mm-hmm. And when I help my friends, I always have to tell them, 
This is the first year. It's not going to be. All, first year just keep stuff alive. Right. Second year, just keep stuff alive. Third year, start moving stuff around because then mm -hmm. it's going to be the way that you want it to be. And then when you 20 years, you've got this incredible space with all of the things kind of lined up and access to herbs and plants that you yeah. need for any type of spiritual work. And that you have a personal relationship with. I think, yes. you know, the herb that you, the rue that you grew in your garden is a different rue than the one that you ordered off of Amazon. And the rue that I get from a friend of mine, yep. those seeds, mm -hmm. then it has a, another level of ashe to it yep. because my grandmother's irises, mm -hmm. like these plants that when you see them, you're just like, Oh my God, my grandmother used to have these in the thirties. Yep. You know, so it, it's a, it's a whole different it's world. It's a transfer of knowledge. Cause I was thinking about that with, um, I've had a few friends be initiated into various of these um, Afro diasporic Yoruba descended religions. And it's not something that you can just go read the Wikipedia article and say, okay, I'm doing Santeria now. There's a process <laughs> that you go through to get initiated in to the community, to learn how to do the things. It's not, just on demand right there is a movie called the king does not lie and it's unique because it's one of the few movies that reflects on film an initiation of a santero and it shows all of the different steps that a person goes through in order to be initiated usually they don't film it because right. it's pro it's a lot of uh mysteries mm -hmm. that really shouldn't be revealed but this film does it so i use it a lot because it is a wonderful device to help people understand that yeah. you can't that because there's people that say oh i'm a i'm a santero and you go oh who initiated you oh no i did it myself yeah well and it's just like somebody saying i'm a phd and you go yep. oh where did you go oh no i just gave myself a phd well right. that's not a phd you yep <laughs> <laughs> oh now, you have a PhD, and yes. you are also an author, and your recent book is focused on this. Can you give us the title and talk about um, the process of this book that you have just produced? Yes. Oh, my God. It has Ashe all throughout it. The yeah. title is the Ashe Caribbean Literary Aesthetic in the Cuban, Colombian, Costa Rican, and Panamanian Novel of Resistance. And uh, this is my dissertation. So mm -hmm. the dissertation was finished in 2002, and this is a dramatic reworking of a, my dissertation because dissertations tend to be very set in a language for a very small group. Mm -hmm. Well, this I tried to expand Magic words it. for a for an initiated audience. Right, yeah. right. So this is kind of like moving a little bit toward a more general understanding, mm -hmm. and it's been wonderful for me. Because when you have a book, this is my first book, and I'm now working on a second book. When you have a book, it gives you a voice. Yeah. Because not only do you know it, but you actually put it in a format and it's been um, vetted. Right. You know, editors have looked mm -hmm. at it. There's some type of cons uh, consistent construction to it. And in a nutshell... Well, it's got two parts. Yeah. The first part is introducing the reader to African spirituality so that they understand what it is and that they also understand that there is been a consistent movement to erase 
anything that is black, anything that is positive, any positive association with blackness. And then um, the second part is where I introduce the major Orishas. And then the last four chapters are the four novels. Mm -hmm. And these writers, oh, it's interesting. Three are black, one is white. Okay. The writer that is white, his name is Alejo Carpentier, a white Cuban. Uh, his, I think the dad was German. The mom was Swiss. And he wrote what he thought was a, the black, a black story. And then when he came out, it was a disaster. Because it was kind of like somebody goes to Harlem. Mm-hmm. Let's say a person who is not at all part of the black culture, not part of the Harlem culture. Somebody from Kentucky goes to Harlem to spend the weekend. And then they say, I'm going to write a book about the black experience in Harlem. Well, that's what Alejo Carpentier did. He wrote a book called Ekwe Yambo O, um, In God We Trust. And it was, when it came out, whites attacked him because for a white man to even write about this stuff, that is alarming. And then for the blacks, it's like, this isn't even accurate. Right. So he waited for 20 years and then wrote another novel called The Kingdom of This World, El Reino de Este Mundo. And that book was based off of the Haitian Revolution. So he found a foundation underneath it that taps into this pattern in which, you know, Haiti gained its independence based off of Haitian spirituality, that Mm. people were uh, initiated and they had a pact that they were all going to collectively kill and destroy the property of landowners. And we see that story kind of like echoing in the United States, not necessarily with Santeria. A lot of times it was Christianity, but there was some spiritual foundation that allowed people to resist, mm-hmm. you know, the oppression. Liberation theology and those elements of, yeah, taking the source and making it work for your community with the struggle that you're dealing with. Amen. Yes. Mm-hmm. So he's white. And that in itself is really interesting because it taps into that whole discussion of how much and is it, the, is it possible for a person who is not African-American to understand deeply African spirituality? And I think it's possible. It's just hard as hell because we... So does the second book succeeds more. It, it did a better job of... His second book, yes, because he was able to create something. He set a pattern and mm-hmm. all of a sudden a lot of white writers white intellectuals in Cuba mm-hmm. started to go, oh, there's some, there's a beauty in blackness. Mm. Now, the other three writers, and, and I won't go into them in, in depth, but w- what's interesting is some of them were inspired by Alejo Carpentier, even though people don't like to acknowledge it. Mm. But when he wrote The Kingdom of This World, it let these other writers kind of go, oh, We've got something in our own country. They didn't sit down and talk amongst themselves. They just started writing. Mm-hmm. And we end up seeing these works where there's a repetition, similar kind of uh, stories. And 
only recently, and when I say recently, I say um, 1980s, 1990s, all of a sudden with the civil rights movement in which universities started to teach African-American studies, that people started to understand that there's black people outside the United States and they're writing and they're trying to get a message out. They're mm -hmm. trying to tell us we're here mm -hmm. and we have maintained some of the linkages, just like here in the United States, we have some linkages, but we don't know that they're linkages. Yeah. One of the things I do when I talk with people, and this is interesting, so I'll, I'll kind of involve you with this. Please. Do you have sisters? I have brothers. I have a whole stack of brothers. I'm the oldest. When your mom would comb her hair or brush her hair mm -hmm. when you were little, you know, the, the hair that's in the brush, mm -hmm. what would she do with that? I have no idea. I think she probably threw it out. Okay. If you ask a black, I'm 57. Yeah. So I would say if you ask people that are older than me, ask women, black women, mm -hmm. what do you do with your hair? Most of them will burn it. Really? Because your hair has ashe. Yeah. And this is something that people don't really know. When I talk with people, they'll go, well, my mom, she flush. My mom would flush it down the toilet. Mm -hmm. My mom would not burn hair. Yeah. Now, a friend of mine, she told me that she always burns her hair, and it's cathartic for her to smell hair burning. Wow. And I said, why is it cathartic? She said, because you grow up smelling your hair burning because, you know, women fix their hair. You go mm -hmm. to the beauty shop. You're accustomed to having hair burn yeah. of it, that smell. And... When I was in Colombia, there was, I did a talk, um, which was wonderful to talk with blacks in other countries in the Americas, because there was one woman who, after I shared with her about the hair, she said, you know what? My grandmother, she kept all of our hair in a can and we just thought she was crazy. <laughs> but what she was doing was carrying out something that she had learned, which is you don't leave your hair laying around. Right. Because, you know, people can use that as a way to access and interrupt your flow of energy. Well, it's connected to you and it's symbolic of you. And so that exposes you to nefarious magic where to somebody else to get their hands on your hair and, mm -hmm. and hair, wish you fingernails. And, yeah, wish you ill intent. Uh-huh. Yeah. But it's just interesting. There's these patterns and, and a lot of people will say Oh no no I I'm I'm American, but when you talk with them long enough, there's rituals that we do. We don't even know that they're rituals. Serve mm -hmm. pork on the first day of the year, and then some people do uh, seafood. Okay, uh, the, but the seafood I don't think is necessarily African. I think yeah. it's kind of a new direction. Um, but there's a lot of things that we do that we don't really know. Uh oh, the xylophone. When I was in Nicaragua, so many people told me that the xylophone was Native American. The xylophone is African. Yeah. It's an African instrument. But in Nicaragua, they can't acknowledge that it's African because they've been taught that it's, it's the indigenous culture. Um, and that's kind of painful in a way because you can see that for them, it's they can't let go and accept that we have some traditions and some symbols in our culture that are African and 
their significance to our society. We have all of these different roots that are coming in. Like every word that we use, every object came from somewhere. It's all developed and descended. But we then have these larger stories that selectively pick which of those we're going to pay attention to and which we're going to kind of sweep under the rug or ignore or cast as something bad or problematic or to be embarrassed of or to to move away from Mm -hmm. and so i imagine that's where this idea of resistance in these works is coming from because it's it's saying that these things that we've been told to ignore or to not pay attention to or that are bad witchcraft that we should stay away from there's actually power in there for us to reclaim and as we start to ignore that power Mm -hmm. and move away from that power then there's other people that will pick that up and go, oh, it's mine now. Right. This is good. This is, everybody should do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's up to us as, I guess, the few of us that are trying to tell people, like, pay attention. Embrace everything about yourself, about your culture. Um, and it's a, it's a constant battle because when we, I think it's better now than when it was when I was little, but we still see with Black Lives Matter. We Ab- see that just being a person of African descent, you have to really struggle to be visible. Right. To be seen, to be heard, and to love yourself and feel safe. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about spirituality, especially in the terms times of Black Lives Matter, a lot of, there isn't a lot of emphasis on self-healing. And it's really important that those people that are out there fighting, they also have to learn tips mm-hmm. to heal themselves because that takes a lot of energy constantly to be out there fighting, fighting, fighting. I might be getting the term wrong, but I know the group, uh, the climate change group, Extinction Rebellion, one of the pillars of their platform is I think it's like they call it regenerative activism or something like that. But they've just been around long enough to realize that any activist movement is going to take on people who burn themselves out. Mm -hmm. And you need to have a strategy for how you're taking care of those people and helping them stay in the fight for a long time. Because otherwise you're going to have this wave of people come in. They try and do too much. They get burnt out. They leave. They drop out of the movement. All of the valuable energy, enthusiasm, and knowledge they had goes with them and then you're struggling to find somebody else and that's not sustainable Mm -hmm. and so as we move towards sustainability in both our economic practices our environmental practices our activism is required to also think about sustainability um so we're we're here in the west end of louisville which has been the epicenter in the last year of a lot of the black lives matter activism and a lot of um conversation especially here on a local level Mm -hmm. about how to address these things um so what what do you think Ashe and spirituality, like th- this is going to get towards that spell idea um, in a moment, but like more broadly, what do you think, how can these things become part of the movement and inform the generation that's struggling right now? I think the key part is to kind of do check-ins mm-hmm. where people can really, which is hard, very mm-hmm. difficult to talk about, like, how are you feeling right now? What, because if people are able to identify how they're feeling at a certain moment, 
especially when it's a collective feeling that's cathartic. cathartic. Mm. Um, because then you know what to do about it. You're able and, to speak to it, like we said earlier. Like if everyone goes around and says, I'm angry, then you're really able to realize that's the dominant energy rather than it being the elephant in the room that no one's talking about. Right, right. And by them labeling it, by them identifying it, then they're able to do the next step, which is to give to one another what they need, which is, you know, you're doing a great thing. Mm -hmm. This is hard. We're all feeling it, but it's going to get better. Yeah. Um, and I, And I think that there's a lot of people that are now starting to move toward self-healing mm -hmm. and not just in Santeria or African spirituality. There's people standing to the side because they're recognizing kind of like if somebody's in a marathon, you know, the mm -hmm. person hands the water, right? There's healers that are there waiting for people to come to them. But then it's also our, in our society, it doesn't feel like people, I don't need to get, uh -uh, I'm fine. But sometimes that check-in is good because it helps you to kind of see things clear and helps you to hit your target better. I know that in the 1960s wave of uh, like second wave feminism, one of the big things that women started doing when they were meeting was having like sharing circles because talking about your personal experience of how you're struggling at home, how you feel burdened by, you know, all of these chores that you as the woman of the household have to do, um, how things in your negotiations with your husband or, you know, boss or coworkers or whatever are affecting you. Suddenly other people were able to realize that the struggle that they were experiencing was a shared struggle that mm -hmm. it felt like, Oh, well, I'm just dealing with this. I'm dealing with, you know, disrespect here. Or my kids treating me this way or these things or that. And suddenly when you all talk about it, you're able to say, Oh, this is a pattern. This mm -hmm. is a pattern that affects a lot of us. This isn't just me and my household. This is a pattern that goes beyond that. And now we can, one, feel less isolated and then have collective action to address that. Mm -hmm. Well, this is my favorite part, and I'm very excited. So what we like to do at the end of the show is create a spell. Mm -hmm. And this is something that's accessible to people who are not you know, initiated into the tradition, but something that they can do to sort of take that first step on the path of the magic that we've been talking about today. Uh, maybe a step towards tuning into Ashe or anything like that. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend? I would recommend that... Oh, and this is really interesting. And I try to, because I, I know it needs to be something that's universal and simple. You know what I would say? Is to walk into some type of space mm -hmm. outside your backyard or a park or even on the street mm -hmm. and find a stone or mm -hmm. rock or something that kind of calls your attention and put it on your altar. And use it to allow you to focus on something as bigger than you, but to help I guess, focus the mind. It's kind of like you ask for something and you've got that rock there mm -hmm. that can kind of help you to get it. Some people would put it under their pillow uh, to get vivid dreams. Right. It For each individual, it works differently, but the idea is you've chosen this instrument, this tool, and then you learn how to use it and apply it. 
I love that. And the, the one element that I love so much is thinking about any random stone that you go outside and you find on the ground has been generated by the, the processes of our earth over millions of years. Mm-hmm. So that stone might have been formed you know, before the dinosaurs were here. It's been around for a long time. It's been pushed by glaciers. It's been swept by rivers. It's, it's moved around and it's ended up on that exact spot wherever it is that you found it. And then you, with your human action, you're picking it up and you're moving it into your house, onto your altar, where it could never get on its own. Right. It's very unlikely that that stone is just going <laughs> to, you know, persistently roll itself up your steps, mm-hmm. through your door, up to your bedroom, and then hop up onto your altar. And so it's you using the 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 unique power that we have as humans to affect change. But in this long line, you know, that stone has still had an unbroken journey of moving around this world. And then you've just moved it into the specific position, into your own life, into your own altar, into your own magical practice. Amen. Ashe. Ashe. Thank you, Tomas. <laughs> Thank you very much, Devin. For more of Tomas's work, check out his new book, The Ashe Caribbean Literary Aesthetic in the Cuban, Colombian, Costa Rican, and Panamanian Novel of Resistance. And normally I'd say grab a copy wherever you buy books, but Tomas was kind enough to offer a special 50% off discount for anyone interested. So you can email him at tomas.edison at louisville.edu. Once again, that's tomas.edison at louisville.edu. And for more of the magic of this podcast as a ritual, you don't have to open a book. You just have to open your mind and expand the boundaries of your belief and also expand the boundaries of our listener base by telling a friend. It's easy. Just, you know, hey, I think you'd like this podcast. Send them a link. It's a very beautiful act of sharing. Until next time, I'm your wizard, Devin Person. I believe in you. Your magic, your magic is amazing. Is amazing. Is amazing.